Welcome everybody. My name is Ben Tertin. This is the podcast for Colossae East. It's not really a podcast, though it is. <laughs> uh, started as a way to deliver our sermons during a COVID lockdown we assumed would be for a couple of weeks. Uh, it's been more than a couple of weeks now. I think our last meeting was first week of March. So uh, we're in Multnomah County out here in Portland, Oregon, and uh, that means we are not even yet in phase one. Maybe this week will apply. There's been, uh, you know, as there is all over, all kinds of questions about this pandemic. So we sit in a funky spot. I hope that this finds you well. Those who are part of our church community, welcome to you especially, but uh, an extended welcome to all who are listening from beyond. Um, this Sunday, we find ourselves at June 21st. The third Sunday after Pentecost, and if you've been following, you know that we follow the Revised Common Lectionary, and I've been talking about the different sermon texts as we go through. Um, sorry, that didn't make any sense. <laughs> They're all uh, there's lots of different texts for each day. I've been focusing on the gospel text, and this week we're in Matthew chapter ten. What a time! to read this passage, Matthew chapter 10, and we'll read verses 24 to 39. Know up front that somebody else, uh, by somebody I mean the church, very large group of people a long time ago, uh, prescribed this text, and it's on days like this that I'm glad to say I didn't choose it. I'm just t- I'm just talking about it with you. <laughs> the church at large that we belong to, <coughs> excuse me, um, has seen fit to to have this be our text for today, not knowing what circumstance we would find ourselves in. I think that it speaks to our circumstance in a profound way, albeit challenging. Before I begin reading, and really we're going to read up through like uh, 11 verse 20-ish, so we'll focus on Matthew 10, 24 to 39, but I want to read a little portion of chapter 11 too. That's an amazing thing Jesus is saying here. Before I begin, I want to share um, a moment that I have had in the past couple of years as I uh, meet with a fella uh, for spiritual direction. And he has uh, helped me in a profound way through a little note card. (laughs) I don't think he gave it to me on a note card. I believe it was just written out on a page. But it's a simple little list. And it has been helping me to pay attention to who I'm listening to in this world. This is not a concept I was raised with. Uh, the, the idea is you're just doing what you're doing, and hopefully that's not bad, you know. It wasn't really until the last few years here I started to get really serious about what voices do we listen to. I've been hearing voices, for example, um, that were that were audible in my youth, But somehow those words kind of stuck in my head and continue to revolve. And not only do the words resolve, but the effect that they have on me. So threats that I received when I was very young uh, are sort of like still there. It's really weird. And then the worst part for me, uh, and I'll touch on this later, but I, I was, it was hard for me to discern what I would listen to a voice that would be very helpful for me in terms of like getting stuff done and figuring out how to belong. Um, but I was corroding, like eroding and dissolving as a person. And it's like, what? I'm following you, God. And and this, uh, this little exercise that I've been sort of forcing myself through day in and day out for a couple of years here has been really helpful. So I'm going to read this list to you. You could jot it down if you have a pencil with you or a pen or digital something. Um, And if you want me to email you, I've got it on a PDF that is just, it's like, you know, print it out and then you can cut it into four little chunks. (laughs) They all say the same thing. You put it on your fridge or something. It's the kind of thing you have to form in your mind, not just read it once and be like, cool and move on. So here it is. It's just a list. God's voice versus Satan's voice. And there's characteristics. God's voice in the list on the left you would make um, has a few characteristics of what it does to you. So when you're listening to God's voice, these are the things that happen. And write them down or just listen to them very carefully. When you're listening to God's voice, it stills you. It leads you. 
it reassures you, it enlightens you, it encourages you, it comforts you, it calms you, and it convicts you. Okay? God's voice does those things when you're listening to it. Satan's voice, the voice of evil or the dark power in the world, does something very different. And here's the list there. Notice if you list these side by side, each is corresponding. God's voice stills you. Satan's voice rushes you. Here's the list for Satan's voice. It rushes you. It pushes you. It frightens you. It confuses you. It discourages you. It worries you. It obsesses you. And it condemns you condemns you. Condemnation and conviction are very different. Conviction, well, and we'll talk about this later too, but for now, conviction is when you know what you ought to be doing and aren't. God has shown you. You see it and you're not doing it. You feel a conviction. Condemnation is an accusation. You're guilty. You're shameful. This is your fault. You're to blame. It's very different than being accused. Okay, well, have those in mind, because in this opening passage, and Matthew, well, it's not opening for Matthew, but for us today it is, um, he's going to talk, I think, in a significant way about fear and what it will mean for these disciples to follow him in the world. And just before, you know, we start getting excited about that, like it's going to be as fun as our youth group trips for a week, you know, uh, no, it's not. It's going to be tough. And so Jesus needs to address their fear. This is really important to me today because uh, I don't know, there's a lot of fear, a lot of fear in the air, a lot of fear in our words and our tone. Um, we have to pay attention to that. So first we're going to do here is read the passage all the way through, and then uh, I'm going to monologue a little bit in between. I want to try to set up something for you that fits, I think, with our day and how I think this um, connects. And then we'll get into chapter 11 a little bit and um, review it in a few key moments as we go through. So that's the plan here. Okay. Matthew 10, uh, verse 24 to 39. This is Jesus speaking. Students are not greater than their teacher. So this is a statement to the disciples. Pay attention, guys. You're I almost hear in between the lines like, I love you guys. You're sharp as tacks. You know, it's great to have you around, but you're not smarter than me. You're it's just like a slave is not greater than their master, he says. Uh, wink, wink. So pay attention. Students are to be like their teacher. So you're not going to become more than me or greater. But you're going to be like me. And slaves are to be like their master. Paul will use the language of bond slave to Christ, this sense of total devotion. So that's who you guys are. You're students, learners, matethes, the word we go uh, with to dis translate into disciples. And you're to be like me. And since I, the master of the household, Jesus says, have been called the prince of demons, the members of my household will be called by even worse names. <laughs> okay. So just check yourself if you think this is going to be a, a super cool. Or, or a nice, easy stroll. People are going to be upset with you. I've been called, I've been called satanic. I've been called stupid. If you're going to be like me in the world, you can expect something similar. Verse 26. But, the big contrasting word, but, do not be afraid of those who threaten you. For the time is coming when everything that is covered will be revealed. Everything that is a hidden, uh, covered over, will be revealed. And all that is secret will be made known to all. What I tell you now in the darkness, shout abroad when daybreak comes. What I whisper in your ear, shout from the housetops for all to hear. Verse 28, don't be afraid of those who want to kill your body. They cannot touch your soul. Fear only God who can destroy both soul and body in hell. What is the price of two sparrows? One copper coin? But not a single sparrow can fall to the ground without your father knowing it. And the very hairs on your head are all numbered. So do not be afraid. 
you are more valuable to God than a whole flock of sparrows. Which for us is like, that's it, a flock is who cares. But, you know, for, for that's an idiomatic of you're infinitely valuable. Verse 32. Everyone who acknowledges me publicly here on earth, I will also acknowledge before my Father in heaven. But everyone who denies me here on earth, I will also deny before my Father in heaven. Okay, you're with me or you're not with me. Uh, and, and that's just the baseline reality. You know, if if you're not wanting to be in my way or in my life, you're going to deny it here on earth. There won't be a place for you in the kingdom. Not particularly. I don't. I don't, I don't think it sounds pretty intense here. But based on the rest of Jesus's teaching, I don't think in verse thirty-two and thirty-three here he means I'm going to get after you and show you how. I think it's just if you don't want to participate in my kingdom, you know, you won't be participating in my kingdom. Uh, I'll I'll deny you entrance into a kingdom you don't want to be in. So, you know, where do you want to be? I've often said Jesus is far more interested in what we actually want. And he often is telling us to pay attention to that. So if, if you're acknowledging me publicly here on earth, that means you're ready to live in this world. And that means you'll be in it. Well, verse 34, and this is very important. Listen to these words in verse 34. Don't imagine that I came to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. I have come to set man against his father, a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. Your enemies will be right inside your own household. Verse 37. If you love your father or mother more than you love me, you're not worthy of being mine. Or if you love your son or daughter more than me, you're not worthy of being mine. If you refuse to take up your cross and follow me, you're not worthy of being mine. If you cling to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for me, you will find it. Read that last verse with me one more time. Verse 39. If you cling to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for me... You will find it. All right. This is the gospel. This is one of the hard teachings of Jesus, isn't it? And his teachings, we don't get a whole bunch of them if you think about all the books and literature we have in the world. There's very few recorded words of Jesus Christ, <laughs> uh, the man from Nazareth, you know. But this is one of his teachings that has been recorded, passed down for 2,000 plus years. And here we are, or maybe not 2,000 plus. I don't know. I'm not a, no, I'm not a time guy. <laughs> no, this is a big statement. And, and here he is. You are going to be afraid to talk publicly and live boldly about me in my way. It's not going to be easy. About the real kingdom. To live in a way that is about the real kingdom. When you do that, kings in our worlds do not appreciate <laughs> new kings showing up in town. You know, that was the little picture of Herod at the very beginning of Jesus coming into the world. He wasn't stoked about some new king coming into town. There's a threat to power, isn't there? Kings in our world appreciate, they, they're they not happy about other kings showing up, but they do like bended knees. Human beings who turn their ears to the popular wisdom of today and follow in line. Follow suit. Kings in our worlds are fueled. I think they are driven by the satisfaction of their own consciences. A self-made omnipotence, a self-made omniscience. And their success as power brokers always rests on the ever-tipping and tilting balance of promise and threat. They are powerful over us, the kings of our world, because they threaten us or they promise us something. Follow me, and I promise you this. Don't follow me, and I threaten you with this. And it's very compelling, isn't it? <laughs> I mean, you don't want to go to jail. I, I don't. I've, I've been to county jails. They're not my favorite place to visit. Uh, you don't want to be publicly shamed, do you? Or lose your possessions, maybe lose your reputation, your job. So very fearful. Do the kings in our world compel us with fear, don't they? The fear that moves us 
forward in a way that's often quite praiseworthy. But the motivation is definitely fear. And this is what I want to hone in on at first. The sense that the kings of this world are not going to take it lightly when you start bending your knee to a different way, a different kind of king. Um, it's, it's very interesting. And, and expand your mind, if you would, beyond the king that we sort of think of with King Arthur or a medieval era or even a king from this first century era. But what it is that holds powerful sway over our thoughts and actions today. We have a different kind of kingship around us. And we all bend our knees to various kings and their threats against us or their promises for us. And I think in our world, fear has become our normal fuel. I'm, I'm learning about this more and more as we go. So I'm in process too. But I learn and I'm learning that we fill our tanks with fear every time we log into a social media page. We'll call it either entertaining or informing. And I think those nice words help hide the, f the fact that we're afraid of boredom or we're afraid of not having the correct information. But it's not primarily a love motive, I think, that fuels a lot of what goes down on social media. It could be wrong, but it certainly hasn't been my experience. And such a fear has almost made it impossible for us to see a larger reality. Okay? We fill our tanks with fuel of fear every time we log into the news stations. We fill it with fear every time I think I'm afraid of going through my mail pile. <laughs> so it often grows too large because it's just there's so many threats in that mail of like what's going to happen if you don't do this and what it's just weird, okay? Well, when we're crippled by this kind of fear, it scientifically it cuts off our prefrontal cortex, our left prefrontal cortex, the front the part of our brain that gives us the the capacity to be human, if you will. I'm very much not speaking scientifically here, but it gives us the capacity to zoom out, for instance, and make a bigger sense of the whole when we look at our particular reality. Okay? But when you're in a place of fear, it's very confining, like tunnel vision, like you feel like you're cornered. Your Part of your brain is shutting down. You're, you're going into fight or flight mode. That's what happens with fear. When it's, when it's not there and that part of your brain is working, uh, we have other kinds of capacities. Um, the capacity that gives us choices. It gives us an ability to imagine a different uh, solution to a problem. It gives us a sense of the whole. So when we're motivated by fear, we get shut down into a very different, almost animalistic way. And when we're not, we can remain, let's call it more human, more rational, more able to think about history and where we fit in it, cause and effect, uh, imagining new possibilities and so forth. We could go on and on. What's my point here? Well, our lives have been born in and formed in a kingdom where we have served many kings that drive us along with fear. It's very normal. It, it's so normal to us that it doesn't feel bad or wrong at all. Um, because it's so productive. And it's just, it's so everywhere. It mobilizes us, this fear. And it motivates us to serious action, doesn't it? The kind of action that really changes things, gets stuff done. We're here to change the world. We're taught, I've been taught all through my life since I was born, to believe in who I am and my power to change the world. And the government and other sources, other kings around me, give me these sort of promises. Do these activities, say it like this, do it like this, and you're going to be so effective, Ben. You're going to really change stuff. You're here to make it better, to fight the good fight. And I mean, nobody's going to argue with that, right? But I'm really interested in what a fear-driven way of life actually brings. It's consistent productivity for sure, which at its essence, I think, is a way of changing everything around you, isn't it? I'm interested in this way of life that may be actually corrupting our souls. Think about The Hobbit, if you would, the Tolkien's Lord of the Rings, okay? So you've got these small, short little guys, peace-loving people who understand life as something of a pure gift. 
they don't seem to be highly productive, though um, industrious, we might say, uh, active, doing things, creating things. But life to them is more to be received than it is to be achieved. It's to be enjoyed and lived and experienced, to be loved and cherished. They party all the time. They're constantly making food and throwing celebrations, lots of gardening, growing vegetables, lots of hospitality and drinking good ale. And, you know, they're just kind of cute little roly-poly guys out in the meadow that you want to go live with forever. And <laughs> it's just they have this harmonious sort of way of life. We're like you can they they're living in this world where it really feels like they haven't altered the world a whole lot from a natural state, but they've stewarded it, you know? It, and they're like symbiotically related to the world around them and let's call it participating with the world around them more than they are just consuming it and advancing their cause. And you you know, it's like it's a utopian vision <laughs> for sure. But it's interesting because they seem to really be at peace. And I'm sure that Tolkien is tapping into a kingdom vision of living life as he describes the Hobbit. They're not perfect and it's not the kingdom of God, you know, tit for tat. But it is, it is definitely a picture or an imagination of what that might be like. Well, okay. Um, and, and one other thing is they're not constantly altering and changing. The Hobbits are really well known for keeping things the way they are, not constantly changing, all right? Uh, this is getting pretty deep into the weeds, I know. But here's the summary so far. Kings in our worlds love our submission to their own ways of life. They motivate us with fear of pain or a promise of reward. And this fear that our kingdom, the one we live in, calls normal, and it praises for being productive and, and promising to help us succeed, is actually a fear that's corrupting us. And so we're becoming less human. This is the thoughts that I'm having so far. Right here at the end, I look at the hobbits and say, maybe there's something that's less fear-driven about them, Not you know, but they were fearful. But here's the question for you and me. What if some of our ideals are actually really good, like that hobbit-like way of life, okay? It's a good ideal, but what if sometimes I'm really too quick to shoot down those utopian visions because they're just too unrealistic? You just cannot do that kind of thing. And why can't you live that way? Well, because people are always going to be people. And just when you set it up with that kind of freedom and love and peace goals, and everybody clearly knows them, and we're all agreed to it, somebody in the group is inevitably going to take advantage. And this sort of insidious evil always seems to creep in. So, you know, yeah, it would be really nice to live that way, but come on, man, there's a hard reality here. No, say the idealists. It can happen if you just give peace a chance. Invest our collective money differently train differently, change education, change power, take it away from who has power now, they're bad. Give it to the good people, they'll be good with it. It will work. Come on, have hope. Yes, we can. Then the realists say, no, look at history. We used to have this sense of, of, of we could do it, we'll all get along, but we can't. We have to have some kind of brutality to control violence and evil because violence and evil comes with brutality. We have we need some kind of aggressive, some kind of penalizing, some kind of intentional harm to control other people. Jails, fines, public shaming, we've got to use fear because only fear works with some kind of people. They won't listen to any other thing. All right. <laughs> Are you confused yet? Is anybody? I am. <laughs> of course we are. You, it's hard to unravel the knot we're in. Every one of us is landing on different sides of different social issues. Now from, I mean, there's got to be three or four major social issues in the air right now. From public health to, you know, you don't need me to repeat it. You see it repeated all day anyway. There's tons of them, and we're on different sides depending on the time of day and what the most recent news was we heard. Have you had that? Have you heard this news? Well, that's why I think we're confused. We're confused. What are we going to do? Take away the police? Who solves the person who raped you? 
Who's going to investigate all these things that we said we needed to stop before, like sex trafficking and tens of thousands of brutal murders and all kinds of oppression? We need the cops to help us stop that, right? We need some kind of real tangible restraint. You can't do away with that. But then the idealist comes in saying that well, those kinds of behaviors and crimes are not part of real humanity. When humans are treated with love and equality and respect, the very fact that all of this crime and civil unrest is happening is visceral proof that the way we treat one another is somehow seriously jacked up. I mean, who's going to deny that? <laughs> Nobody's going to look at where we're at in the world and be like, yeah, I think we're doing it pretty well. Something is afoot. Somebody is getting shamed. Somebody is being, somebody is employing the voice of darkness to shame others. Christians, if you're listening, may we never use the voice of darkness. It accomplishes only destruction. Somebody is being accused. Somebody is getting blamed and made to feel a guilt that our Savior promises is already taken for free. What business do we ever have in making somebody wallow in guilt? Somebody's being blamed and shamed and accused and guilted, and somebody, therefore, is being motivated by fear to change themselves in the deepest place of their being. There's a conversation happening right now about deep-rooted sin and evil. The argument goes there's a kind of sin and, and destructive force that we don't even often know we're participating with deep down. And that could be and is, I will say, a true thing. But when, is, when, the, when the voice that comes to you says, change it now or else, hurry up, it doesn't matter if you know what's going on or what you've done wrong or why you've done it or anything like that, just a forced change of behavior to fit or else. You're motivated then by fear, and guess what? Healing doesn't come. It only gets passed down. And now there's a new fear that we have to bow to, and that is still the voice of a king who is not Jesus. Folks, as I listen and watch these days, I'm sensing more fear in the air than I have ever seen in my life. And that could speak to my youth or my general ignorance, <laughs> which it probably does, but that's okay. Uh, it's still true for me. I've never tasted so much fear just in the air. And this is what I know. Fear gets a lot of action done. It produces a lot of good-looking things. Uh, and societies that are addicted to productivity, which are not like the hobbits... <laughs> are also societies that are quite blind. Um, for the same reason I tried to talk about before, our brains go into a less human mode. Because when we're driven by productivity, I think we're actually driven by a fear of what would happen if we weren't productive. In that, we are unable to see when our tactics are old and boring and repeatedly proving to alter things temporarily, and then creating more harm in the end. We're actually stuck in systems because we're driven by fear. We're unable to imagine any other way that, that than what our kings in the world have taught us as the way. Okay? And we, we start to learn about this way when we first pledge allegiance to the flag. So the Son of Man, Jesus, this carpenter from Nazareth, who we Christians recognize as a king, the king, in an even more real and more tangible and more visceral, I mean, he's more human and has a more human kingdom than any other. Here he is talking to his close friends and disciples in this Matthew 10 passage, and he addresses their very real and very understandable fear. And we just need to say this right up front. He's not telling us that if we feel fear about our situation, that we're just sinful babies and we need to grow up and have some faith for goodness sake. <laughs> right? That's not Jesus. He's not saying, don't be afraid, you babies, because that's really an accusation and a condemnation in and of itself. No, he's saying with the most kind-hearted, inviting voice, you don't need to be afraid. Don't do it. It's not necessary. Jesus' way is a way of mastering that fear instead of remaining slaves to it. 
It's a life in community of learning to hear the voice of fear and distinguish it from the voice of God's eternal love. And they are never, ever the same. I know that many of my fellows who have grown up in America during the last century have been formed with an understanding of Satan's voice to actually be God's voice. And so they actually, if they'll go to a church service, and if the preacher's not giving them a stern condemnation, they don't feel like the sermon was very biblical because it hasn't driven them to a place of fear. And what they do is they'll call that fear challenge. I like to be challenged. Well, maybe that's true. I've actually learned through quite a few years of pastoring that many folks uttering those words are actually saying, you're trying to make me feel really good about who I am. And that can't be true because I know that I'm a shameful piece of crap. Folks, if that's where you're at, I'm just saying from my experience, I don't think that's the voice of God. I don't think I'll ever, ever believe that again. Thank you, Jesus. (laughs) Well, this is how my youth groups when I grew up formed me. My parents formed me. I think they meant well, but they too were formed poorly. The voice of condemnation I have always thought was from God. And it is not from God. Just think of Paul. We no longer fear condemnation, (laughs) right? But in this passage, Jesus will say, fear only God. Well, (laughs) you can't, you can't, you know, fear condemnation. You you get what I'm saying. That's a, it just doesn't work. No, God is not a voice of, now I said earlier, he's the voice of conviction, but those are radically different. The voice that says, hurry, hurry. If you don't do this now, it's going to be, uh-uh, or worry, worry, oh my gosh, it's just never. Or the voice that says, be ashamed of yourself and your people, you low loser. The voice that frightens you, confuses you, obsesses you, makes you feel very discouraged. Look, I'm not going to presume to know your experience. I'll speak from many years of pastoral experience and my own experience, and my guess is this. A hundred percent of us have felt many of these things either earlier today or already this week, certainly since March. All right. Maybe we've felt those things throughout our entire lives. Since you were in junior high and high school, have you ever felt rushed? Felt like you weren't getting enough done? Felt confused about who you really are and why you're really here? Have you ever felt discouraged about your possibilities for the future? Like, man, I just don't think it's going to be good. I I think I've dropped the ball. I've missed some huge opportunities. I'm just discouraged. How about worried? Some of us choose to worry about things, I guess. You know, like I'm just going to, I think I've done that. I've just like, I'm just going to keep worrying. But my experience has been much different than choosing to worry. It's more of a besetting, deep, like ongoing sense of worry or dread. And often it has not had a specific referent, you know, like I'm really worried about a hawk attacking my head today or I don't know, something like that. That worried about a specific thing. I'm just like this overwhelming sense of dread. I think it's just plain old crippling anxiety. (laughs) Have you ever felt obsessed? Like you just had to own that product, so you you just keep thinking about it until you have it? Or maybe obsessed about what they said about you? Obsessed, just endlessly thinking about what they did to you and how it was wrong and it was unjust and it was unfair? Boy, I got caught in some of those obsession loops for far too long. Maybe just obsessed about all of the crap in the world. Maybe you're obsessed with a specific part of the world's brokenness and you're worried and it's just, oh my gosh, I just can't stop thinking about it. It's the one thing. Look, if this is right, and I think it is, obsession has nothing to do with God. Obsession. Why? Think of the opening of Joshua. Joshua's going into a crazy threat world. You know, it's a crazy, like, enemy land with giants, and they're like, oh, my gosh, we can't do it. We're going to freak out. And God tells them, don't turn to the left or to the right or, you know, from any. Always focus on my law. Don't depart from it. Let it be in your mouth all the time. Let it be on your lips. Uh, On and on and on. He gives all these images, and he says, so that your way will go well for you. The idea is don't look 
away from God. Jesus gives the same, or John does in John chapter 3, when he points to the picture of, uh, you know, the scene with the snake up on the pole and the people have to look up at it. And, and he says, you know, you, you look to Jesus and nowhere else. Stay focused on Christ. Otherwise, you start to, it's almost like you, you can obsess about one thing. And that one thing is the obsession on the mystery of God and being invited into it and just pursuing that, letting everything else be secondary. As soon as I have something revolving in my head in a stuck way more than those things, I'm actually turning to the left or to the right away from God. So that's why that voice that obsesses you can't be a voice of God because it's obsessing you on something other than God. All right. Winning games and trophies, yes. Good degrees from college, master's programs, yes. Good health insurance plans, five-year goals, investment opportunities, advancing, growing, changing. It's all so productive, yes? But the fear that drives all of this action makes us unable to imagine another way. And at the core, we are not or, or we're not we're not actually fixing much, and I think that's what we see. I think most are saying something like, "Whoa, I had no idea it was this rough," or "I have known it was this rough for a long time, and it sucks that nobody has any idea." <laughs> you know. Either way, what's happening right now is this crazy moment where we're, we're realizing everybody is realizing it's not working. It's not working. And so we're, we're going to be tempted, I want to say, to go back to, they're going to be tempted to follow a king who will inevitably follow us back or lead us back to that old way, that way of fear. That fear that drives those normal ways of life, they make us un, unable to imagine another way. And so we're actually going further into darkness, but even more speedily. Jesus was called an idiot for many reasons, I think, but certainly because he was just not afraid of the kings of this world. With trust in his father, God, he saw through the way of fear, the way of controlling other people. And this is God in the flesh. And sometimes we move too quickly over that idea. But this this is God. Jesus is God who had limited and has limited, li- limited, <laughs> limitless Limitless wisdom, limitless power, and he never uses either of them to control people, does he? And to us, men and women and children who have tread in this broken world a lot longer than Jesus has, at least if we think in terms of our families we were born into, we know that his way of life just doesn't make any sense. We know it at the deep place of who we are. So Jesus has in these chapter in these verses we've already read has really invited the disciples to see that his way makes the most sense and it is the only true way of life but the world around is not going to appreciate it and i'm suggesting it's because there's a power struggle here between the real king and the kings of this world all right and and in matthew 11 this next chapter that we'll get into here um, he is talking about the way of that kingdom, and he's going to say, you'll know the wisdom of my way by its fruits, if you will, or by what it actually does. Everybody else is going to sound wise, but pay attention to if it actually helps anything. I've heard a lot of very wise and powerful and credentialed and studied and reports that prove it kind of people actually truly trying to teach us yet again that if we scream and, you know, all these really nice sounding words, we stand up and make our voices heard and da-da-da-da-da-da, it's all just a big carrot, folks. It really is. They dangle it over us every couple decades and they say, look it, you're changing things. You're changing things. You're, you guys are doing so great. Just keep bending your knee to the way it works. From elementary school and beyond, we'll teach you. You have a powerful, we'll teach you how to use your powerful voice. 
And we'll tell you over and over that you have the power and we'll share the power with you. Yes, our government system, it's different than all the other government systems in the world. Ours was rooted in goodness and truth. And we really want, we didn't, ours isn't rooted in death. No, of course not. No, no, no. (laughs) And on and on we go. I'm getting a little bit nasty there. I don't mean to be that way. But I'm just so frustrated with the kings of our world promising stuff. And I see a lot of people right now just sort of without knowing it, moving back into this sort of like, oh, okay, this is going to be the way we change it. We got to find the right people to condemn and the right people to be in charge. And then, and it's just like, oh, geez, come on. Jesus says to this, uh, to this messenger guys, when John the Baptist, we're in chapter 11 now, when John the Baptist says, go and see if that guy's the Messiah. Uh, Jesus says to those messengers, Go tell him what we've been up to, and then he'll get it. So chapter 11, verse 4, quote here, Go back to John and tell him what you have heard and seen. All right, and here it is. Blind people see, the lame walk, those with leprosy are cured, the deaf can hear, the dead are raised to life, the good news is being preached to the poor. And he added, God blesses those who do not fall away because of me. <laughs> Isn't that great? I think that last proverbial line is just that. that just a general proverbial statement. Like, God blesses those who stick with him. Sticking with God is a very good way to live. But I also hear a sort of, so now that you see what I'm really about, you might be tempted to roll back to the way of this world's kings. And remember, God's way is the only good way. It's not going to look like it, but it's so good, you know. Uh, because Jesus is not telling him, yeah, I'm the Messiah. You can tell that I am by all the powerful fighting I've done. It's by all the, the subtle uh, and subversive healing and teaching that I've done. And then in the next verses, Jesus really commends John the Baptist and talks him up. He's just the best dude ever. You know, the crowd is like, yeah, he's the, and he asks him, what did you see in him? A little baby wimp or like a reed blowing in the wind? No, no, no. What did you see? A prophet standing with strength? Yeah, John the Baptist, he was like a prophet. He was super strong, great leader. And to the Jewish mind, that's very important to be a prophet, very good, godly kind of leader. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so Jesus says, I tell you the truth, verse 11, this is 11, 11, I tell you the truth. All who have ever lived of everybody, none is greater than John the Baptist. So yeah, I'm on your guys's page yet. He says, even the least person in the kingdom of God is greater than John the Baptist. (laughs) Isn't that beautiful? He's like, this is how radically different the kingdom is. You're looking at John the Baptist as like the pinnacle of human flourishing with God. And I'm telling you right now, he's like bare bones, basic. There's so much more. Don't limit yourself and don't let the kings of the world tell you what's possible in the kingdom of God. Listen to Jesus only. Verse 12, and from the time John the Baptist began preaching until now, the kingdom of heaven has been forcefully advancing and violent people are attacking it. Whoa, what? That's the most interesting, mysterious kind of thing, isn't it? A forcefully advancing kingdom is what? It's violent. <laughs> Brass tacks. Look, folks, I do not think that you can find any kingdom on earth that has been established outside of violently controlling somebody else. I'm not a f- world historian, but I th- I'd say good luck. <laughs> Finding a kingdom that was uh, established and secured in some way other than violent war. But the kingdom of God has not been advancing with violent force. Yet Jesus says it's forcefully advancing. What a statement. It's so profound. Look, guys, the moment John the Baptist started telling you to turn away from the way of this world, to repent, turn around, uh, and to prepare a way for me, the Messiah, yes, from that very moment, the kingdom has already started advancing. And not in a little baby way, with force but not with the force of fear, not with the force of controlling other people, with the overwhelming, unstoppable force of God's eternal love. 
Go tell John what I'm doing. I'm healing people. I'm loving the poor. I'm healing blindness and all the disease, the diseases I run into. I'm bringing those socially isolated lepers of society back into loving community. Go tell him that's what we're doing. And he will know that I am legit. Go tell him that. And John does recognize him. And it's so funny when he first sees him in the gospel of John, you know, John sees Jesus coming down the valley path or whatever. And he says, behold, the bear of vengeance. No, behold, the lion of greatness. No, he says, behold, the lamb of God. We imagine a sense of unrelenting power and infinity, all of that of the divine nature of God. And yet we imagine that all of that in the image of a lamb, which is at that time a very well-known image of a sacrifice. John sees Jesus for who he really is, and he lives for him, and it costs him his freaking head. (laughs) You know, he is, John the Baptist, he gets unjustly, brutally murdered at the hands of corrupt government leaders. Very corrupt. At the hands of power. Uh, that's a different story for a different... You can go read that in the Gospel of John. Uh, no, you can't go read that in the Gospel of John. Sorry. Go read that in the New Testament. <laughs> the reason I walked us through that is because I want you to see that we're not playing with a verse or two or a key word. We're getting a sense through this whole passage of what Jesus is talking about. And I think the conclusions that we've I've been drawing anyway from these past texts in the last six to eight weeks, these podcasts we've been doing, I think they've been tracing the same theme. We've been talking about it. At the heart of all of this is a sense that Jesus's way is simply not going to be acceptable to the world. It's going to split apart families. It's going to not create this sort of peace kumbaya moment that we all wish it would. The passage we're focusing on in Matthew, Matthew 10, Uh, shows us Jesus's addressing of the harsh reality that they can expect if they choose to pursue his way. It is freedom at the core. It's love in pure form. It's glory and power and goodness, for sure, all around, but defined by him, not according to the way of the world. And the world's going to hurt you when you live this way. Right after he gives the John the Baptist example, he reminds the people why they rejected John. He wasn't eating and feasting like us, but he was all, what, homeless and nasty, right? Yeah, he's got camel hair on. He's eating crickets and bugs like a maniac. No, thanks, weirdo. He's low. Jesus says, you guys rejected John the Baptist for not, for, for not eating and feasting, for not being like everybody else was. Now, to me, the Son of Man, this is in Matthew eleven nineteen. I do feast and drink, and they say about me, he's a glutton and a drunkard. He's a friend of tax collectors and other sinners. The lowlifes, the weirdos. Ugh. Right? <laughs> okay, I think this is a big connection to our passage, because there it is. There's two things at play there. On the first hand, he doesn't bow the way of Christ that John the Baptist was already living, doesn't bow to the economic promises of the kings of our world. He's like, I don't need all that crap. Here's what I need to be doing. And like Jesus, he doesn't bow to the other kings of power in the world. Right? That's why they call him, well, he's eating and feasting. He shouldn't. He should be obeying the religious rules. (laughs) I think there's a huge connection to our passage here. I think the whole passage that we're reading this week is a sober sort of wake up people kind of moment that Jesus is having with his disciples. And also, therefore, for you and me. Yes, in a sense, especially in the Merry Christmas sense, Jesus came to bring peace on earth and goodwill toward men and women and children. Yes, he did come to bring peace on earth. He's not in this passage contradicting himself when he says, don't imagine that I came to bring peace to the earth. I came not to bring peace, but a sword. (laughs) We're like, which one is it, Jesus? You bringing peace or you not bringing peace? You know, law and non-contradiction. Come on. Okay, look, he's not contradicting himself. I think that he is actually saying, I did come to bring peace, but the way that that comes about is not very peaceful. Does that make sense? Jesus's work is to become for you and me and our children and neighbors. He's to become for all of us the king of all nations. 
And notice there, this is important, especially for today's sort of cultural discussion, the flare-up discussion we're having. It's not one singular nation that God is calling. The kingdom of God is so cool because it's not like everybody just stop being who you are and come do this one simple thing. We like white picket fences and da 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 right? It's not all become homogenous. He says every nation will bow, which assumes they stay nations. Whoa. We stay who we are. God didn't create us so diverse on accident. Fear tells us diversity is dangerous. Love tells us it's creative and wonderful and good. So the way of Jesus' kingdom is not an eradication of self or identity. You're born into who you're born into. But it's that all nations bend the knee to one king who has one rule of law, if you will, one way of life, and it's the way of love. Yes, it gets more detailed than that, I understand. But today we're asking, are we moved by fear or by love? The way of Jesus' kingdom is love. And to teach this and to make this happen, Jesus' work is an eradication of the lies that we believe, and it's a dismantling of human power. And that is not going to work super well with people who are addicted to power and addicted to the information that they curate for themselves. We call that lies. Self-curated information is nothing more than deception. I need to say that again for myself and for you. And I say it with the love and the kindness of God. I hope that that comes through my voice. Self-curated data is deception. And I think it's driving us. This is a mystery to me. I'm still thinking about it. I think it's driving us to a sober reflection on how much we trust information. It may be a king that we're bending to, and that king is lying to us, I think. I think we're going to have to, as the information comes down to its bloody and and burning end, we're going to have to start to rethink what we do with information, because I don't know that it's any more possible And maybe it never was possible to bank too much on whatever information you've received on any particular glimpse of human existence you're focusing on at this point. But I digress. This work of dismantling lies in human power is not usually going to be a 1K fun run. (laughs) That's what Jesus is trying to say, I think. It's more like running the Moab 240. That's a 240-mile ultra race. My sister ran it. Oh, my goodness. And it's like running that through some snow and mud and barefoot, probably with scorpions and snipers in the trees and tigers chasing you, tigers that have rabies chasing you the whole... That's what it's like that. (laughs) Maybe that's too much. Sorry. Uh, But he's saying, when you live in my way, don't expect widespread approval. Okay? Okay. Again, I got to take a side note here and say I hear a lot of self-shaming and self-blaming in the Christian world today. Again, this is not the voice of God. Conviction. Dallas Willard said this so beautifully. He said, conviction is when the Holy Spirit shows you where you're not doing something that God has shown you you should be doing or should be stopping. It's specific or general. It is serious or seemingly small. But the voice of God will always come to you kindly, like a loving father opening his arms to pull you up from suffering, out of slavery, to pull you into love and into freedom. The convicting voice of God comes to you with a sharp sting and a kind voice. His voice is never unkind. It never leaves you feeling guilty or shameful because it would be contradictory to him saying, you no longer fear condemnation. My sacrifice, Jesus says, has removed the guilt stain from humanity. If that drives you, then you're driven by fear and it's, and it's not a reasonable fear. So do not be afraid, says Jesus. His voice is never unkind. This world's voice is telling many people on every side of the equation, you have not done enough. 
White people are being told, you have not done enough. Black people are being told, you have not done enough. And they're being told by both sides. Everybody's telling everybody, you haven't done enough. God's voice will not tempt you toward law as a form of healing or life-giving. His voice will never tell you that the social ills of our world are all your fault. And yet he will convict us to say this world groans because of sin that we all participate in. His voice is not against people or human beings, flesh and blood. That's not where our battle is waged, but it is waged against the spiritual forces of darkness. Jesus's power then is seen in his forgiveness, not in his violent destruction or control of others. It's against the powers that control this world's kings. When you realize, he says, that the economic promises coming from our world's kings are false, then you start looking more like John the Baptist in principle. We don't all wear camel hair. I get that. But in principle. And that principle is that his life was not decided on the basis of what would advance his financial situation. Not at all. American Christians, most of our lives have been decided on the basis of how to secure and advance our finances. And because they've been rooted in that, which is a fear-driven desire, sometimes we call what we're doing productive, and the world around us has been screaming, yeah, it's productive for you. (laughs) And that has created bitterness and deceitfulness and hatred, division, Lord, have mercy on us. When you start living like that, where you, you care less about college degrees, and, and, and then you're called irresponsible, aren't you? You become more interested in your children's spiritual and mental and physical health because you value human life more than what somebody else calls productivity. You become willing to sacrifice massive amounts of social advancement and massive amounts of financial stability to instead pursue peace and health and well-being, shalom, for yourself, for your children, for your neighbors. Love yourself because the self that you have is a gift from the God who calls you his beloved. I think John the Baptist was in that boat, and he's like, man, I just don't need to do what everybody else does to make sure they always have enough spending money. That kind of stuff isn't what I built for. And then love your neighbor as yourself. And when you start doing all of this, all of a sudden there just isn't a CNN narrative or a Fox News narrative or even an ABC or MSNBC or a White House or any other narrative that you find yourself fitting into. Peter will say, I feel like a freaking alien in a strange land. We're sojourners in a world we don't belong to. You don't get sucked into the outbursting flames and fires of human attempts to control one another. You stand clear of it, just like Jesus. And instead, as the Apostle Paul taught, we lead a quiet and simple life, rooted in the love and trust and faith of God. It sounds a lot like Jesus, doesn't it? (laughs) He had had a life that was far quieter and simpler than most of us today would have liked. The only thing folks can, if we live in this way, we, we would come to this place where our hope is that folks would say, that we've, we're one of the, the most kind and generous and loving and forgiving human beings they ever met. What a blessing it would be to know that our participation with another human being brought them healing and hope. And I hear this Christian voice sometimes today that says, it doesn't matter if they're healed or if they're hopeful. What matters is what they're doing and saying, you know? So we got to just control that. It's almost like a reduced vision of the human. Like we've actually believed that the kings of our world were right when they said humans are more or less just dumb material. You know? Oh, it's just fascinating. Well, when we start to live this way, folks will grow suspicious of you. They always do. Always. They thought John the Baptist was an idiot because he dedicated his life to teaching repentance. What a dummy. To teaching people to leave the way of this world's kings and prepare to receive the true king as your own way. When that happens, you also stop feeling threatened by the law. Jesus felt no threat 
by the religious law brokers that told him, you shouldn't be feasting and eating with those sinners. He said, you guys don't have any power over me. You feel no threat from the military or from the police. Maybe it's not that you feel no threat, but that the threat you do feel gets second. It gets seconded. (laughs) You put that below the hope and trust you have in God's goodness. Verse 26, don't be afraid of those who threaten you. For the time is coming when everything that is covered will be revealed, and all that is secret will be made known to all. That injustice that you think is just not getting taken care of or will never be righted, God promises will. So don't sweat so much. Be his person, his spokesperson of truth, his active agent for justice and good in the world, but be such with peace. Moses will enter the promised land of peace and rest, even though he never has yet. Yes, that's in the book of Hebrews. It's an important thing that Christians can forget easily. We need to remember it. And where does hate and injustice reside, if not in the shadows of lies and deceptions, prisons of lies? And he says that will all be made known and not just to the right people, but to all people. Almost as though at some point we will all see how we were all, 100% of us, all completely culpable for one another's suffering, and we all had the wherewithal to live in Christ's way. And we'll see that, and we'll change, and we'll be formed into his kingdom people. I believe that. That's what we're learning now. Remember, every secret is made known. No injustice remains wronged. God's promise is a full healing for all humanity. And, and to hear that and just say, oh, well, cool, I don't care then, is to deny the full kingdom of God. So, don't you know, that's not the way we go. What we do is we're then reduced from any sense of fear. Like, if we don't get it done, it's just going to be all over. Some sense of ongoing dread. Verse 28, don't be afraid of those who want to kill your body. They cannot touch your soul. In his other teaching and in his own life, I think he would add that fearing social rejection is also very misguided. For the same reason, they can reject you socially, but they cannot touch your soul. And if you're afraid, it's likely because stepping into the way of Jesus is by definition, stepping out of all of those promises of comfort and security that the kings of the world give. And for us at first, it's those, the mother and father who serve as our rulers. And if they're not involved with Jesus's kingdom way of life, then they've formed us into a way that isn't compatible with the kingdom, and you're going to have to break from them. This is Jesus's language of if you don't hate your mother and father, it doesn't mean you need to start hating people to be in with Jesus. It just means that those first kings of yours, those first rulers, can't continue to hold sway as their number one as long as, you know, then Jesus can fit into their way. It's the opposite. It's you're going to have to break from their way in every possible instance that it's not mine. And if you try to hang on to their way, you're going to lose everything. That's the point. When you go that route, if you want to be responsible for your own life, you can be, and you've probably got somewhere between 40 and 85 years to live. (laughs) You know, Uh, you will lose your life right now and you will start to be enslaved to that voice of death, so you'll know that's happening when you are rushed, discouraged, worried, obsessed, feeling condemned or frightened. When that's happening, you're listening to the voice that's robbing your soul. Okay? Don't fear that voice, says Jesus. Fear only God's voice. If you cling to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for me, you will find it, he says. Don't fear that voice that rushes you and pushes you and frightens you. And when we're clinging to our own lives and losing them, we can feel it and see it. The church has helped to heal us and invite us into a new way. We join together in communion in the life of Jesus, and we give our lives to him. We choose his way. We begin, therefore, to find healing that actually changes things in this world with force. Not the kind of force that a bomb does, which quickly destroys old structures and it blows up old systems to make way for a a fast and powerful creation of a new power structure. This one will work. No, it's not that kind of force. This is the force of a glacier. 
and it moves a millimeter a day. It moves slower than we can perceive. And while those powerful offices up on the mountain are getting blown up and rebuilt and demolished and rebuilt by each new party claiming to be the saviors and the better kings, meanwhile, while all those are getting bombed and rebuilt, the glacier moves the whole dang mountain. <laughs> like faith to move a mountain, yes? Glacier, the glacier cuts away the, the bedrock. Little by little, love by love, soon there's no longer any foundation at all for that kind of human rule. Soon those who have devoted themselves to the loving way of Christ become so numerous and so filled with life and hope and goodness that people see the blind are healed. And we see that this old revolving system of power and controlling one another is not the way. The glacier cuts through and the wind, the ruah is the Hebrew word for wind, spirit, breath. If you've been in the mountains, you can see where wind over time will carve away the whole mountain. Like a glacier is our forceful power of the kingdom. Like the power of God's spirit eroding what looks so strong in this world. May we all be part of that way of life. May we all be a part of this work filled and fueled by faith, hope, and love. May our love be patient, kind, humble, and filled with the generous grace of God. May the Lord Jesus Christ have mercy on us all, sinful people who desire life and who desperately need his love this day, this week, and forevermore. Amen.